Hello and welcome to Semaphore Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Cheryl Hunk. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Please go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm Cheryl Hung. I'm the Director of Ecosystem at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is the home of Kubernetes, Prometheus, Envoy, and lots and lots of other open source projects within the cloud native world. And my mission there is really to help drive the adoption of these projects among end users. So I work mostly with companies like Spotify and Apple and MasterCard and not the cloud vendors, but the ones who are adopting it and getting them active and engaged within the open source community. Mm-hmm. Great. And how do those companies end up? Is it like something that you reach out to them or they approach you or how that process starts? It's a mix of both. So some companies who are very interested in getting into open source will come to us and say, hey, we want to show off our engineering prowess. We want to really encourage our engineers to contribute more to open source. We want to increase our contributions. So they tend to come to us. Those are the bigger companies. And then some of the smaller companies, we tend to say, hey, it looks like you're doing some really cool things within the open source projects. Have you considered coming and joining our end user community and being a more formal part of the ecosystem? Great, great. And speaking about ecosystem, maybe for some of our listeners who are not familiar with the CNCF, or they know about it, but they don't know maybe the details and how it works, can you give us maybe a brief overview of Foundation and how it works? It's definitely not a typical organization. So firstly, it's a non-profit. So we don't sell products, we don't sell any services. Of course, it's all open source, so it's all free to use and free to contribute to. So there are effectively three big chapters within CNCF, and they're run by three different committees. So one of them is the Technical Oversight Committee. So if you've seen the projects and the sandbox incubating graduated levels, then the TOC, the Technical Oversight Committee, are the ones who decide what's the technical strategy of CNCF which are the projects that should come into the foundation and what level they should be at. There is the governing board and the governing board mainly handle marketing and budget decisions. And then the third chapter is the end user community. And this is the one that I mainly run and work with. And these are the, as I said, the end users, the companies who are adopting the end users of cloud native. So in a way, I have a very nice group of people to work with because the other two, especially the GB, is quite vendor heavy. You know, they're companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Alibaba, you know, they want to sell their cloud services and they want to sell them to end users. So they really want to get in touch with and find out what the companies that I work with are doing and how they're using cloud native. Yeah, I immediately, once you were going through the chapters and all that, wants to mention that your role seems the most interesting to me because, yeah, working with end users, it's, uh, I guess, the most important part. 
I love the open source projects. I'm an engineer by background and, you know, I have immense respect for the work that the project maintainers do in particular. But it's a very different mindset to work with end users because they're not trying to sell cloud services. So it's more about how can you understand their needs? Can you be customer focused or end user focused? And how do you make sure that they're actually being productive and successful when they adopt cloud native? Because if the end users are not successful, nothing else matters, right? You know, building a project that has no end users is not a good use of your time. So it is about understanding the people and why they want to be involved. That's most important. Yeah, and he has that a great natural feedback loop that their success is your success. So yeah, exactly. We can pretty much celebrate together. Yeah, great. Hey everyone, Sanford has published an open source book called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud native apps. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. And I saw recently that you launched a CNCF technology radar. Can you please talk a bit about that? Yeah, this has been something I've been working on for a couple of months, and we just launched it in the middle of June, June 2020. So the motivation for the technology radar what came about because this group of 140 end-user companies, it's unlike most of what CNCF does, it's a closed group. So we don't record calls and we don't publish them afterwards. And the reason for that is because most end-users can't talk about what they're doing publicly without getting legal and PR approval. It's just very hard for them to publicly say what they're doing. So it's a closed group. We have closed Zoom calls and mailing lists, and there's a lot of really great discussion on it, but all of that is within the group. So I wanted to help surface some of these discussions in a more aggregated and anonymized way so that all of the general community who are interested in finding out what do end users do with Cloud Native can actually learn from this community. So that was my starting point. And the technology radar, you've seen the ThoughtWorks radar, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so you understand the framework of like, if you haven't seen it before, it's kind of a series of concentric circles. And then there are different points within the circles. And things that are closer to the center are more, how would you say, more mature? Safe. Safe. I would personally yeah, qualify them as safe. If I need to make a decision or make a suggestion what to try and use, then yeah, that's what's in the center is safest. That's how I interpret those. Interesting. So yeah, so I agree. So things in the middle, they're usually more mature, they're stable, they're applicable to a wide range of use cases and across different teams. And then as you go further out and out on the circle, it's like, these are upcoming projects or they're things that, you know, are no longer being so actively used. So I was inspired by this format and I kind of borrowed in good open source mentality, right? I just borrowed the format to use it for the CNCF technology radar. So in the CNCF technology radar, 
the idea is to say, what are these end users really doing and what are they using? And a big difference here is that the ThoughtWorks radar is the reflection of one company, right? It's what their consultants think about these technologies. So I wanted to make this really community driven and do it based on surveys and data. So ask those companies, how are you using cloud native? What different tools and projects do you use? Where do you recommend them internally? And then put them together onto this kind of graphical layout and say, here are the projects that the end users see as that safe, mature, stable. And then, you know, as you go further out on the radar, less mature, or we think you should try it and assess it. So that's the general idea. And it's a new quarterly feature. So every quarter we pick a different use case and publish a new edition, which is community driven and shows off what the end users do. And the first one we just launched was in continuous delivery. So if you go to the CNTF blog, you can read the full blog post and see what that looks like. Yeah, that's great. Do you maybe have a predefined list of topics that you plan to cover in the following quarters or you decided on the fly based on interest maybe? So if you go to cncf.io slash tech, T-E-C-H dash radar, R-A-D-A-R, this is a redirect to a GitHub issue. And on that GitHub issue, I'm asking crowdsourcing opinions and, you know, what do you think? What would you be interested in hearing about? And so people have said observability, monitoring, security, all these ones where there's a few different solutions and there's no one clear winner in that area. But the ultimate decision about what the topic would be, the use case for each one, would be up to the end user community. So taking opinions and votes and then it'll be up to the end users to decide what they want to actually learn about. Yeah, so it seems that it's a like interesting way of communication also, I mean, between those, um, let's say maybe companies as the data is coming from them and then going to general public so anyone can get their data, but also like, the companies themselves can uh, get their data. Yeah, so one important thing to note is that the data is not anonymized within the end user community. As I said, like within this community, they can share everything so they can see which companies are using what. So externally is the anonymized version. But if you are an end user and you actually wanted to see who's using what, you could also come and join our end user community and start to actually contribute and see the real unanonymized data. Yeah. And this is great. I think that this will, you know, kind of scratch the age of many people who are listening to this podcast. Because I remember like roughly two and a half years ago or something like that, when we were adopting Kubernetes, choosing between your know, so many tools and as I call them safe, is do you want to invest? Because if you pick a tool and then you invest, you know, your time and the effort of your team and then it turns out that something else wins, <laughs> then you're not in the great position. So I see this as a great safety net also for many, many smaller teams and companies because we can copy from the big guys in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Like my goal is to make this an actual useful resource. And as you've probably seen the CNCF landscape, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The CNCF landscape is enormous. 
there's so many projects and tools on it. It's very hard to know where to begin, even. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it can be a full time job just to try and keep up with all the new things that are coming on and testing them and trying to make sure they work with all the other tools, like the rest of your stack. So I think everybody is facing the same challenge. Okay, yes, Kubernetes is the base, you know, Kubernetes is the winner on the container orchestrator. But then now, how do you pick everything else around it? How do you pick the monitoring tool that you use? And what security things should you use? And how do you deal with stateful data? Like, how do you deal with the storage side? There's so many decisions to be made. Yeah. And in this lifetime of a product, and it's great that Kubernetes is a winner. I mean, it is great, but it's also great that we don't no longer have to decide maybe between Swarm and Kubernetes and so on. So that one is easy. But as the whole community and ecosystem is maturing over time, I guess the open questions are changing. Some questions are answered and clear. And what would you say that are open questions of like 2020? What requires the most attention from those teams to decide on and to figure out? I'll give my opinion as well as some data-backed opinion. So the thing that I personally find interesting and I think is still an unsolved problem is storage, persistent storage. And that's because previously to CNCF, I was at a storage company doing persistent storage for containers. And I joined in 2017 and I thought within 18 months, this would be a solved problem. Like you know, we'd all know how to run containers with persistent storage and be able to do failover and high availability and everything. And I thought it'd be about 18 months. And I think we're in 2020. So it's three years on. And what would you say? Like, do you still see this as a a challenge? Well, we are a team of 25 people. So we don't want to have anything persistent, Mm -hmm. if possible at all. We run databases that are external, hosted by Google. Previously, we used RDS on AWS. So yeah, I think that recently we had some experimental microservice, which had persistent volumes, if that's the term. Yeah. How did that go? Well, it was okay. There was a bit of learning curve and there is a bit of anxiety <laughs> that generated <laughs> because having responsibility for data is you know, hard. And the team such as ours, ideally, we would not be responsible for anything which is persistent. That's my view. So I would say even ideally, if the problem even is solved, generally, I would prefer to direct our team and to have a voice not to deal with that. It's a perspective of a team that is fine with that, like a you know, smaller team. I think it's extremely common, like that view. Most companies still would prefer not to deal with the persistent storage themselves. And there are some very large companies who, you know, run their own on-prem, everything on-prem, everything in their own data centers, and they need to have an answer to storage, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, they can't move to RDS or something else. I think it's unsolved. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that Sanford has a new book out called CICD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you are looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. Our domain is such that we don't deal with, let's say, 
files that we need to do something with in any kind of other way, if it's a, some kind of data store. But if you're working in a domain where it's part of your domain, then you have to deal with that. Yeah, I agree. So I still keep a close eye on what's happening in storage because I think there will be a point in the future when it becomes normal or it becomes much better understood how you run persistent storage with containers. I don't think it's even 18 months from now, to be honest. I think now it's more like years because you're right. It's a really hard problem. Like there's no leeway for errors. You can't lose 1% of data and just be okay with that. So it's technically a very interesting problem. So that's what I would say is my personal interest in like the open challenge. Talking more on a data-backed view, every year the CNCF runs a survey either once or twice a year to the broader community. And one of the questions that we ask them is, what is your biggest challenges? So they can choose more than one option. And the trend over the last few years has been some of the challenges like monitoring and networking have started to sort of become less of a problem over time because there's more tools and more frameworks to decide how to support those. The number one challenge or the broadest challenge that people say now is dealing with cultural change. So bringing that DevOps mindset to a team and having people understand how to do GitOps and how to release frequently and often. And that's the big difficulty now. And that's a question of training, education, just time, just time. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. It was maybe closer to 10 years ago when the DevOps was generally starting. All the configuration as code was a big thing. And let's say from a perspective of a developer, that's maybe that other thing that I could do. It's maybe a natural thing that some people tend to work on. And that new role that seems that it's a new thing for the wider community is SREs. And generally, the part of dealing with the reliability deployment part is moving closer to developer. I guess, as you said, education is a big part of that and a cultural change. And it will take time. It's harder to solve than technology, definitely. Do you have any suggestions? Like, how did you work with your teams and your people to get them into this mindset? Yeah. Since the inception of our company, you know, the continuous deployment, continuous delivery, our stack is pretty deep. So we are responsible from the UI and showing the logs and the statuses all the way down to spawning and long-running asynchronous jobs, which are maybe, you know, compiling your code or doing whatever. I would say that we are like ops-heavy or DevOps-heavy company. And even if, you know, a new team members, even if they are just starting their career, they're from the very early stage exposed to a lot of, let's say, dirty parts, as developers will maybe say. But I would say that compared to the previous times when we were using some more proprietary systems, like maybe Elastic Beanstalk, Heroku, or even ECS from AWS, now the situation is a little bit better because there is more documentation, more people are using Kubernetes, and so on. So it's just easier to figure out things. So I think that for the developer who just gets the responsibility to also deploy and monitor and observe their application, it's much better. What majority of people are not used to is that a lot of their 
programs, let's say, their services, what they're building is doing a lot of networking. They're talking a lot to other parts of the system. And that observability is a big thing. Luckily, it's in a pretty mature state. But from our personal experience, I would say that, yeah, that networking stack, all the retries and circuit breakers and all that, it just becomes, you know, everywhere. And the network is never going to be super stable. So it's not a call to a different function in your single process. A lot of things are calls over the network. So from my perspective, that's the biggest challenge for developers. They are just doing a lot of network calls or much more than previously. So what do you think about service meshes? Are you trialing any of them? I would say that without the service mesh, you almost cannot run a production software inside of Kubernetes if it's microservices based. That's our experience. When we were launching the newest release, like Sanford 2.0, we actually needed to adopt Istio at a relatively early stage of the project because you just don't know what's happening. You don't know where something is breaking and your eyes are kind of, you know, fogged. So you just have to solve that. For running monoliths inside of Kubernetes or something like that, maybe you can get away without service mesh during some period and then you'll have to adopt it. So it's kind of a no-brainer now, but it's great that, for instance, with a GK installation, you're getting Istio pre-installed and configured and you don't have to worry about that because Istio is quite a complex thing. I would say that dealing with Istio was the hardest thing for us in the early days. So anything particular? Like, I'm interested in hearing your experience with Istio. The point number one is probably that it was like pre-0.0 version. You have to install it on your own. And there are quite a lot of components that are in the play. So there is Envoy, which is, you know, one product, and then there is a mixer, and there are many other components that you have to learn how to configure and deal with. It's manageable. (laughs) It's just that there is always that feeling, oh, I prefer that I don't have to do this. I wish this is done for me. But I think that still the team actually did a great job because it felt all the time that they're very focused on usability and to injecting those sidecars on their own and all that. I would say it's all going in the right direction. (laughs) It's just that it takes time. As you said, we just expect that some things will happen sooner. But yeah, 18 months is sometimes not enough, as we have heard. I think that's quite interesting. Like Service mesh still is a big topic and one that a lot of people are running into the same challenges right now. So I do think it will get better. I'm optimistic about service meshes as well. Yeah, yeah. I would say that the stage which service meshes today is mature. And it seems that there is a lot of effort from various vendors that are pouring into it. And it's something that's affecting everyone. Storage is maybe not something that is affecting everyone. Maybe there is just a less investment in that area, I would say. I still see some use cases that don't use service meshes, but they tend to be quite, not exactly static, but they're not expecting to grow very large or very fast. So it's kind of okay, it's kind of manageable to just keep a few services running. But I think that if you go full into microservices, as you say, and you explode the number of microservices you have to run, at some point, the overhead of dealing with networking in every single service just doesn't make sense. You should be pulling it out and running it as a service mesh. 
Exactly. And it's hard to get it right if you have to write all those retries and circuit breakers and so on on your own all the time. There are people who just know it better, <laughs> like the team behind Envoy and so on. And just those uh, sane defaults, that's also something huge. So yeah, Istio has some of the same defaults in this configuration, and that also helps. It's interesting because back in 2010, I was an engineer at Google, a software engineer, and I was building Google Maps and features within Google Maps. And as the sort of user of this, I never had to worry about almost any networking things at all. It was so well solved and well abstracted that you could almost feel like you were not building a distributed system, right? You could just imagine you have a perfectly running, huge, unlimited computer underneath it all. So in that sense, it makes it for a very nice developer experience. It's just one less thing you don't have to think about. Yeah, I'm really interested (laughs) to hear how this will sound to a lot of developers because, yeah, having that platform that just supports you in that way that you don't know that it exists. That's amazing. It seems that a lot of us will have to invent that from scratch or parts of it or something like that. So yeah, it's a huge, huge factor. Yeah, I genuinely miss that a little bit because it's just such a nice platform. You know, Borg, the predecessor to Kubernetes, where you don't have to think about any problems really with the actual infrastructure. I mean, of course, that comes up with trade-offs as well. So the complexity of it is much greater. You know, you can't just grab some logs off one server and go and inspect them. I have to find my service, find the actual job that's running and figure out where those logs are. And I think at Google, they expected people to take six months to really understand how to write software using Borg. And I'd say with Kubernetes, it feels like it's similar length of time to fully understand the concepts, to get some hands-on experience, to run into some problems so you learn how to debug a system within Kubernetes. I feel like it takes probably six months. What would you say? I agree. It's not a super steep learning curve in the beginning. There are just a handful of concepts that you have. Once you understand ingress, service, pod, a couple of other things, you can get up and running fairly quickly. It encourages people to try it out. It depends on the organization of the team. So if there are people that you have and that will help you and speed you up, if you run into any issues, then with that team effort, I think it can be pretty smooth. I heard in one of your interviews, if I'm not mistaken, that you mentioned that you were lacking the whole ecosystem when you change the company. So when the Googler leaves the company and joins another company, hey, there is no more Borg and all that nice platform is not there for you. So you have to kind of relearn. Yeah, it was quite strange, actually, because... You know, when I left Google, I was there for five years. So, you know, for five years, I had all these things taken care of for me. And then you come outside and you go, oh, I actually don't know any tooling. I don't really know how to build products without the assistance of all of this tooling. But that's one reason I really like Kubernetes and the way that the community has focused on being multi-vendor, multi-environment. So it's not just tied to a single company. As an engineer, if you leave that company, you lose all of your knowledge about tooling. You can take that to another company. And if they're using Kubernetes as well, you'll also have the same understanding. Yeah, yeah. 
there are many great things about open source software from various perspectives, but generally for the people and their careers, using just open source tooling is one of those benefits. So you are not investing in some vendor lock-in that this company uses. And then when you are applying for another job, hey, I use this and, you know, we are using completely different stack. And then you're kind of, okay, I have to relearn it and so on. I think that's really empowering for a lot of people in their careers. Something I found really fascinating when I first started getting into the Kubernetes community is that a lot of people who work on these projects define themselves as they're part of that project first. You know, they're Kubernetes maintainer, they're Prometheus maintainer, whatever. And as they change employers, they kind of care more about the projects than about what employer do you work for. I think that's quite unusual. You know, it's nice to be able to say, like, the work that I'm doing is open and that's what I'll continue to do, even if I change employer. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That timeless component is great for people's career. Yeah, definitely. Great. Okay, so we'll let our listeners review your technology radar. And in the show notes, we are going to link to that GitHub issues that you mentioned so they can, you know, see what our people are interested in and also there and maybe to share their opinions. And good luck with Technology Radar. We're looking forward for the next quarter and the next iteration. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And I'm really grateful to dozens of people who put time and effort into creating this first version. And I really want to make this a useful resource for the community. So I want to make it better. I want to improve this over time. So please feel free to put your thoughts into GitHub issues. You can email me. My email is chung at linuxfoundation.org. You can find me on Twitter. So I'm very open and I really want to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. Bye. Bye.